Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. I'm joined by Claude Jennings. Claude, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Claude, we got some pretty good reviews of our conversation, the one we did, just you and I, without any smart people. Mm-hmm. We did. A lot of people want that. Maybe we should do that every now and again, you know? And I shouldn't say without any smart people. You, you <laughs> were smart. <laughs> you, you, you more than I. But anyway, it was interesting. Our friend Brian Kennedy, you know Brian? Mm-hmm. He liked it a lot. He said, I thought it was very good. Nice. So, okay. yeah, so we'll do it again. And that's a smart guy. And so if he thinks it's oh, yeah, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. we'll defer to him. Mm-hmm. So, folks, this is the podcast that takes a look at the news of the day. I'm going to do that. And we try to have thoughtful conversation about things that matter. Joining me today is Michael Schellenberger. He's the founder and president of Environmental Progress and author of the book San Francisco by Progressives Ruined Cities. So Martin Luther King Day was Monday. Mm-hmm. Did it seem a little muted to you? Can I tell you my theory? Okay. There was a time when white America listened and learned from black leadership about the significance of Martin Luther King. Okay. And we put on TV and the radio and we would hear various black spokesmen, spokespeople talk about King and his influence. I didn't need much persuading. I've been a King guy pretty much all along. Um, uh, you know, I was in Mississippi when he was there speaking and when he was assassinated in Memphis, Lorraine Motel, behold the dreamer, let's slay him and see what becomes of his dreams. Mm-hmm. What a horrible night. Uh, anyway, but King was the man, the man with the, let me just say it with the progressive left right now. He's not, mm. uh, let me put it this way. Martin Luther King, what's he known for most famously? Children be judged. Right, yeah, by the uh, content of the character, not the color of their skin. Not yeah. the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King said most important thing is character. Mm-hmm. Least important thing is the color of your skin. There is a movement, progressive, part of progressivism, white and black, saying the most important thing about you is the color of your skin. Mm. It's the exact opposite of what King. Right. So that's why I, I had a sense that it was muted because you didn't have this long parade of people waiting to get to the mic. Mm-hmm. Are we with King or not? I think most Americans are with King. I think most black Americans are with King. Now, the dream is about what he hopes the future will be. Mm-hmm. There's no discounting the facts, and there's no discounting the fact that King understood for a long time in this country race did matter. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're black, get back. Sure, sure. Um, but, and no one's denying that, that, that race mattered, and it mattered way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, constitution, three fifths, three fifths of a human being. Right. Now I was just writing this yesterday for my history textbook. This was a down payment and, you know, Madison and those guys who were in favor of abolition of slavery, you know, put an incentive in there. You know, if you free your slaves and they become full human beings, you get more power, mm-hmm. you know, in the represent, in your representation, but it was a promise and it was unfulfilled and it took people like King Frederick Douglass King to say, Hey, you know, we want that equality. We want that day where color doesn't count. Mm -hmm. So just here's the irony. I think just when we kind of get to the point as a, as a people, as a country where we're saying, yeah, it really doesn't matter. 
said, no, 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 wait. Wait, wait, no, it matters It matters <laughs> overwhelmingly. Most, yeah, it's the thing that matters most. Black right? students over here, white students over here, we're having a meeting just for black students. Yeah, it's like, well, I thought we weren't going to do yeah, that. Yeah, really. yeah, no, you're right. And then it's even in language, you know, um, like you talk about uh, when we look um, at headlines and, and, you know, they use this thing for voting rights bill. No one's fighting for voting rights. Right. Everyone in this country is allowed to vote. Like, it's like everyone has the right. Yeah. Why are you pit? Why are Why you pitching, pitching it this way, way yeah. when it's not voting rights that you're that, that that we're talking about? There's not one person in this country who's a citizen that does not have the right to vote. The president uh, goes down to Georgia and says, "You know, are you with uh, Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis?" Uh, Trey Gowdy was on. He said, "You know, these liberals in New York looking down their noses at my state, South Carolina. We happen to have a black senator. Mm-hmm. We happen to have the second highest ranking." Uh, Democrat member of Congress and Jim Clyburn, mm-hmm. Tim Scott, of course, is the senator. And uh, he said they don't they don't have that in Delaware. Well, and by the way, if you go down to South Carolina, you walk around whether it's Columbia, Charleston, wherever, nobody's fighting in the streets. No, black people, and white people getting along. Go to the doctor's office. Black, white folks sitting no, in the waiting right. room talking. Right. To, like right. no, no one's fighting each other in the streets. Back to King, he mm-hmm. said he was most afraid in Illinois, Cicero, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, not, right. not, not in Selma. No, right. Says my father. My parents were divorced when I was very young, but my father, Yankee, all his life, very uncomfortable around black people. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. fact of the matter. You know, here my wife, you know, born in South Carolina, raised in North Carolina, Georgia, entirely. Oh, hundred percent comfortable. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. you know colorblind and just you know cool when you talked about voting rights my mind just went to another topic let's mm-hmm. go to it yeah coca-cola sports is atlanta based they support the boycott of georgia uh-huh for the all-star <laughs> game but they're 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 all in in china right right well there you go yeah well what is going on here? Georgia, by the way, allows more access to voting and voting time and polls and places than does the state of Delaware, mm-hmm. the state where Joe Biden comes from. Mm-hmm. So, but they, you know, they heard that Georgia was bad, so they moved the All Star Game out of there. Um, Georgia doing anything like what China's doing? No, it's not even close. I don't think so. Georgia, you know, has this terrible, horrible backwards voting law. Let's see, who'd they just elect? Senators? Two Democrats? Oh, yeah, yeah. one for Black Warnock, Pastor and the, yeah, mm-hmm. And Ossoff? Mm-hmm. I mean, who are we kidding here, you know? Yeah, yeah. So um, this whole Olympics thing is, is shameful, I think. It just should not be there. Right. I'm with Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton. This, this country, China, they either through intent or negligence, you know, released this mm-hmm. virus that... Mm-hmm. Killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. And they got this concentration camp thing going. And um, they're hosting the Olympics. All sorts of restrictions. Don't bring your cell phone, you know. You're going into a repressive totalitarian regime. Uh, one, one is mindful of the Hitler Olympics, Jesse Owens, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But there was a point to be made in going there. And Jesse Owens winning the race. Right. Hitler then wanting to shake his hand. Interesting, you know. Um, But I, I don't think we should grace the Chinese with this opportunity. 
So now, Dr. Bennett, people are back out. They're traveling. They're taking vacations. Recently, Sierra and I, we talked about this on the show. We went to Seattle, took a lot of great pictures. And so I heard about this company, PaintYourLife.com. And essentially what happens is they take your photos, these great memories that you're able to make with your families. They get an artist to kind of paint the picture and it comes out, I mean, looking fabulous. It's, it, it's basically the picture, but just painted by, like, a world-class artist. I see. And it's a great, like, gift maybe a, for a, a wedding, for birthdays. You know, we just... Would you like a painting of me? I would. I would. Now, if I wanted to get a painting of you, I would just go to paintyourlife.com, and I would just upload a picture that I have of you, and their artist would then paint it. It's super easy to use. And you think about this, well, this has got to be expensive. Absolutely not expensive at all. They've got so many different options that you can choose from. You can choose from the type of painting. You can choose the type of frames. You can choose the sizes. Um, And then you can also choose the backgrounds. The thing that I love about this is when you submit the picture, they will email you. Hey, do you like this? Hey, here's what we've got so far. Review it. Approve it. And and so you're kind of involved step by step. So if there's something you don't like or something that you want edited or changed, they can change it before printing it out. And sending it to you. And, and it seems to me this also does the nice social function of employing unemployable artists. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an economic stimulus. Ta- for people talented who, people. <laughs> exactly. You know. To keep them employed and then keep a, a like roof it. over their head and have them. <laughs> yeah. And so you can, uh, you can choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. It's fast. It doesn't take a whole lot of time. You can receive your portrait in as little as two weeks. I should bring in the portrait so you can see i'm 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 ready to buy on this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's meaningful it's personal uh you know and people like my mom who are super you know sentimental with things like that it's a perfect gift for someone who's sentimental and one other thing that i love about it dr bennett is that the platform is user friendly you don't have to be a tech genius to understand how to upload your photos and things like that they make it really really easy for you you can get it all done as far as the uploading process in five minutes and it took me less than that because I already knew which picture that I wanted. But then we had so much fun. Sierra picture and I, of your son? Well, no, it was just me and Sierra without, without him. Okay. But we had so much fun doing it that, you know, we started looking at other pictures that we wanted to get done. And, and so we'll probably get a few more. So, yeah, at PaintYourLife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited uh, time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Shipping and supply chain is a big deal nowadays, and so you get free shipping. To get this offer, text the word BILL to 64000. That's BILL to 64000. Text BILL to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com backslash terms. Again, text BILL to 64000. So joining me today, uh, Claude, is Michael Schellenberger. He's the founder mm-hmm. and president of Environmental Progress and author of the book San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Boy, it's really interesting. I saw you on TV, Michael. Very compelling story. Um, I want you to talk about I'll start with my own story. Very brief. When I left government in the 90s, I was on the speaking circuit, you know, giving speeches. And that was my basic income. And... Even though I lived in Washington, about a third of the speeches, maybe a quarter, third, were in San Francisco. And I welcomed them because it was the most beautiful city in the world, or in the country anyway. And always a pleasure to go there. And I went and stayed in hotels on top of the hill there and went down to the water and 
jogged and, you know, went to restaurants and just totally enjoyed the city. I haven't been back in a long time. And having read your book, I'm not sure I want to go back. What happened? Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks very much for having me on. And, and thanks for asking the question. Well, it's a really long story. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, it's a really hard question to figure out where it begins. But, you know, I think the what really happened is that we're a radical left libertarian city. San Francisco is fully has fully embraced in many respects victim ideology, the idea that there you can divide the world into victims and oppressors and to victims everything should be given and nothing required. And we have basically classified a whole set of folks in the victim category, including mentally ill, untreated mentally ill people, people with serious drug addiction. And rather than requiring that they sleep in shelters or get psychiatric care or go to drug rehab, we're facilitating their addiction by letting them sleep on the streets, uh, not prosecuting crimes they commit, not requiring that they get treatment for often serious mental illnesses. And, you know, meanwhile, it's an extremely affluent city. It's maybe the most affluent city that's ever existed. That may sound like hyperbole, but you have to keep in mind that, you know, the the founder of Facebook is there. There's many, many billionaires in town. The budget for spending on homelessness is is absolutely enormous. It's about $100,000 per person, per homeless person Mm -hmm. that the city spends alone. Wow. Not counting state and federal aid. So in some ways, it's a problem. It's clearly a problem of our own making. It wasn't, it's not something we can blame anybody else for, um, you know, we are in the midst nationally of two overlapping drug epidemics, one around methamphetamine, one around uh, opioids that turned into a heroin epidemic about 10 years ago and is now a fentanyl epidemic, fentanyl yeah, being yeah, a synthetic yeah. opioid. And so those problems were never dealt with. And we also never had a proper functioning psychiatric or addiction care system. So we don't really have the facilities, the places for people to go. We don't have psychiatric beds, psychiatric hospitals. We don't have homeless shelters. We don't have sufficient rehabilitation clinics. And as the problem has grown worse, it's basically just been treated on the streets and it's made the city increasingly unlivable. And, you know, I point out the, the book is actually, as you point out, the subtitle tells you what the book's about. It's the book is, on the one hand, it talks a lot about San Francisco, but it also is about Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland. But when I you know, first started working on the book a year or two years ago, a lot of people on the East Coast were like, well, that's not how progressives are out here. Well, you kind of fast forward to today and you see both in Washington, D.C. and in Boston, yep. you have the city governments allowing the proliferation of open drug scenes, which we euphemistically refer to as um, homeless encampments. So the problem has gotten worse and it's spreading. All right. Let's break it down here uh, to segregate some. Um, so I was reading, you know, often I think when, when you read, you try to associate what you're reading, uh, new information with something you know. And uh, for years I've been, and I may be wrong here, but for years I've been talking about the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill. And I think it was in the 80s, 90s, like 80, 85, 90% of people who were in mental institutions were released. Is, is that part of the problem at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of mythologies about this. You know, when you interview people Please. in San Francisco or progressive cities, people say, yeah, the problem is that Reagan let everybody out of the mental hospitals. 
you know, what I point out is that the, the peak of the population of mental hospitals was actually 1933. Mm. We went through a Great Depression, World War II. We had shortings, we had staffing shortages, and there was a lot of mistreatment in psychiatric hospitals. I always want to remind people, psychiatric hospitals were a very progressive, liberal innovation in the 19th century. We pulled people out of, you know, basement dungeons, barns where, where mentally ill people were being locked up because their families couldn't handle them. Psychiatric hospitals started out as a very progressive, enlightened way to treat people who many of, you know, who and viewing them as suffering an illness. You know, you get to the mid 20th century, the quality of the institutions declined, partly because of short staffing, partly because it's such a difficult population. You know, it's, it's, these are very difficult people to deal with. Uh, my aunt suffered from schizophrenia and she had very good outcomes. Actually, she lived in a residential uh, care. She lived in a home, a group home, but it's a very difficult population. So, you know, you get to President Kennedy in the early 60s, and that was when deinstitutionalization really started. Um, and, and I mean, it really was just a lot of what people think. I mean, we were literally just dumping people onto streets, you know, with a little bit of cash. What was the theory behind it? I mean, there were sort of two groups. There were or three groups, really. There was kind of liberals you know, the Kennedy administration, some psychiatrists, they were very enthusiastic They probably about new psychiatric drugs, antipsychotic drugs for treating things like schizophrenia. They were probably too optimistic about what those drugs could do. They also knew that it was, it is better if you can to treat mentally ill people in communities and smaller facilities rather than these big hospitals. Kennedy's sister suffered from mental illness and she was lobotomized and suffered enormously sure. for it, sort of the shame of the family. And then you had the radical left and the radical left was different in the sense that they were, they viewed, many of them viewed mental illness as a social construct, meaning it was just a myth. A lot of uh-huh. them believed that it was a way to oppress different people as, a, as well as to establish what normal was. And so this is Thomas Zaz, R.D. Lang, and the most oh, famous yeah. is Michel Foucault. Mm-hmm. And these thinkers all argued that mental illness was a myth and it was just being used as a way to oppress people. And then you had conservatives and Republicans. And for the most part, they were the most passive of, the, of those three groups. They kind of went along with um, the deinstitutionalization efforts. I think there's, there had been a sort of historic discomfort with a lot of psychology and psychiatry on the political right. And so they sort of went along with the the real drivers of reform who were the, who was the left and liberals, many of whom, you know, had very radical views that that mental illness, for example, was a symptom of a capitalist society, a sick society. And they pursued um, very utopian, you know, I think you'd say Rousseauian approaches, which is um, you know, at its best, it allows for people to be treated in the community, but at its worst. It allows schizophrenic people to basically live homeless on the streets, uh, live in their own filth, yeah. uh, become addicted to hard drugs. Yeah. And so for sure, that was a big part of it. And then, and so when modern homelessness emerges in the 80s, it's really the combination of two groups, the untreated mentally ill who had been let out of institutions and people suffering from crack addiction, which was usually crack and alcohol addiction. And so those two groups ended up on the streets and are what we refer to as homeless. Well, it's really interesting, uh, that history. And 
the political coloration you give to it. Uh, what that, that drives with, with my thinking. I mean, <clears throat> the, the people like uh, Lang and Saz and others, they had ideas, right? And they were pushing these ideas. And conservatives didn't have ideas. Yeah, you said passive. And I think that's right. Uh, they weren't they weren't in many ways in the game, but went 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 along with it um, because you know it, it, the stuff is hard. It's hard to figure out exactly what the right thing to do is. We're talking to Michael Schellenberger, I should say, and his book is San Francisco: Why Progressives Ruin Cities. So, so, so this starts to some extent with the deinstitutionalization. But was it the intention of people who were for this? that people should just go and live on the streets. I, you know, I mentioned Rousseau. Rousseau says man is born free and is everywhere in chains. Okay. So if I'm a radical leftist, I say they're in chains. They're in this, uh, this institution. Let's let them out and let them be free. Was that it? So let them just go to the street or did they get to the street after another, after a series of other attempts? Well, some of them were, I mean, it was sort of shocking. We discovered cases where people were literally let out onto the street. So for sure that happens. And you're right. I mean, there was, uh, it is Rousseau, right? So the idea is that uh, people are oppressed by the system or the society. Marx, of course, updated that and made it capitalism, uh, the system of exchange, you know, free exchange of goods. And then Foucault sort of updated it to make it even broader around even the way we use language to describe people as sick or healthy, uh, sane or insane. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely that. I mean, there's there's a, a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Minari that's about a Korean family that starts farming in the south of the United States, a very sweet film. And it does depict a very mentally ill man who is sort of a, a farm laborer. Uh, he had actually been in the Korean War and the film is quite touching and it, it sort of shows, I think, the best of how the best possibilities for having pretty severely mentally ill people being in communities. And it, but it was on a farm and it's very difficult to do that in cities, particularly around open drug scenes in poor um, low income neighborhoods where they often flourish. And so it was really that combination of, you know, my aunt she was cared for and she never fell into drug addiction, but it's very hard for people that are suffering from serious mental illness who then become addicts to ever get, to get well. And so that combination, and it's just a kind of huge blind spot, as you know, I mean, you've dealt with progressives all your life. There's this, this huge blind spot at the limits of love and care and compassion. And that to some extent, you need things like some amount of coercion, you need laws, you need law enforcement, you need police. Love is not all you need. Love <laughs> is all obvious, you need. but it's not. Love is all you need. Love, love the Beatles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, had a, they were wrong about that one. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to today. How many people are on the street in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, the official estimate is around 5,000 people on that's called unsheltered homeless on the street, another five or so in shelters, um, you know, in various facilities, but the accounts are the way we count is a total mess. As you probably know, it's a very difficult population to count. They haven't done a count for two years because of COVID. There's really nobody doubts that the numbers have increased significantly during COVID, not just in, in San Francisco, but across the United States. 
You know, I should say I'm getting a lot of reports from around the United States, including New York, Washington, D.C., just other cities of people exhibiting, and I hesitate to say mentally ill because meth, methamphetamine, yeah. people in meth, meth-induced psychosis are indistinguishable from people in psychotic states from schizophrenia. Yeah. But we are seeing incre- increasingly bizarre behaviors on public transport, in the streets, behaviors of a violent nature often sexual nature so the problem is clearly around you know it's being affected by the drug crisis by the lack of treatments by the lack of of social workers law enforcement putting hands on people helping people get the help they need even arresting people when they're out of control but yeah the numbers are basically around 5,000 on the streets in San Francisco. Um, in, in California as a whole, the official estimate of homelessness is around 160,000, of whom at least 100, 120,000 are unsheltered, meaning living in tents, living, uh, some of them in RVs, some of them sleeping rough outside. It's, it's you know, the, the official accounts show that homelessness increased in San Francisco by, I'm sorry, in California by 30%, while they declined in the rest of the United States by 18% over the last 10 years. Uh, I hear you correctly, 5,000 on the street, 5,000 in shelters in San Francisco. Correct. Okay, well, the 150,000 in California, where's the other large clusters? I mean, LA is by far, I think LA by far has the worst homeless problem in the world. So San Fran- uh, LA City officially has 44,000 homeless. Uh, L.A. County has 60,000. Those numbers are almost certainly out of date and higher now. Skid Row in L.A. is the epicenter of it. And it's it's I mean, the only reason San Francisco feels more chaotic in many ways is because the city is so much smaller. So much smaller. Yeah. 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 Um, Serious quick questions. Um, of these people, let's take 5,000 on the street, 5,000 shelters. How many have drug problems, drug addiction problems, would you guess? I mean, when you, this has been a source of contention. I mean, of the people living on the streets, it's 100%. I mean, it's, there's just, there's just nobody that's on the street for economic reasons. The mother who's fleeing an abusive husband with her two kids, we do a good job of sheltering that person. She does not go stay in a tent in the most dangerous and filthy streets of San Francisco. So it's, if you're living in a tent on the streets, it's, you're suffering drug addiction. I mean, the Europeans, there was a moment, an aha moment for me when I read it, when I discovered a paper, the Europeans don't call this homelessness. They call it street addiction. They refer to the, what we call homeless encampments. They call them open drug scenes. So these are basically communities of addicts who are so addicted that they have lost all connection to friends and family. They've stopped working. Um, they, they use all their money to basically buy drugs. They don't even need to pay for food, obviously not paying rent. So the people living on the street, and there's some people on the street who are schizophrenic, but even many of those people are also suffering from addiction. So, yeah, I mean, it's not to say there's not somebody on the street who is maybe in their car for a few nights or whatever, but the most part, if you can't afford the rent, you do what millions of other people do and you move. (laughs) You don't go live on the street. 100%. Uh, And in the shelters? In the shelters, it's very high. The official numbers are are two-thirds suffering from drug addiction or mental illness in L.A. and San Francisco, 
in the shelters, though, I mean, it's it's very close to all. Right. Uh, back to California. Is California a magnet? Yeah. Because you said other other parts of the country have seen it. fewer. Are, are they going to California? Is the word out? Absolutely. Homeless? Absolutely. What's the word? You'll be treated better. You get more money. You get more care. You get more drugs. It's really the drugs. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, you know, San Francisco offers the most generous cash welfare. But I mean, you know, not a, first of all, a lot of that money doesn't go to people that are on the street. Some of it does. But honestly, Bill, it's the drugs. You know, yeah. if you're an addict in Cleveland and you know where you need to go, I mean, you can maintain your habit. You can maintain your opioid or methamphetamine habit for 10 or $20 a day in San Francisco. And does the city pay you money while you're there? The city does have a cash welfare system as well as food stamps that you can uh, illegally but convert to cash for you know a discount so yeah for sure i mean it's uh um uh the city is enabling with cash and the lack of law enforcement and open drug dealing open drug scenes people's addictions citizens of san francisco bothered by this are they hassled harassed uh mayor barry marion barry in dc said come to dc it's a Great city. Just stay out of certain parts of town where there's a lot of murder, but otherwise it's fine. Um, yeah. Kind of, kind of an odd message, but people are hassled and given bad time on the, on the street. Absolutely. It's a huge problem. I mean, you see people, people are assaulted. People, I mean, when you talk to young people who like worker bees working in the tech companies, uh, particularly women, um, almost all of them have stories of being physically wow assaulted or harassed by drug addicts, by the mentally ill. We've seen a significant increase in crime. There's been a big debate about it because, of course, a lot of crimes don't get reported. And so there's been some gaslighting by various Mm -hmm. progressives Mm -hmm. to deny the fact that these things are happening. But the public is extremely upset. But they're, you know, the voters, because they're so progressive, they're, they're caught, they're trapped by their own ideology. And so there's resistance, there's genuine popular resistance to doing, to using law enforcement to, as a, as a tool for dealing with these problems. So I'm a voter and I go out and um, I'm a woman and I get hassled in the street and I come back home and three weeks later, I vote for more of this, essentially. Yeah. Basically that's what has occurred. I mean, you always have, wow. Wow. you have politicians that, I mean, Willie Brown was the yeah. mayor from 1996 yeah. to 2004 his protege is the current mayor. You know, they both promise to take action, but they they have a lot less power than uh, the mayor of New York, for example. And so they're they're constrained by their board of supervisors, and the board of supervisors is elected by people. Uh, their district elections, not citywide elections. So they're elected. So often you have uh, representatives of communities that are on hills. There's an expression in San Francisco, crime don't climb. And so if you live on a hill, you don't often, you're not subjected to uh, the, the, uh, the street addiction in, the, in the, the open drug scenes that people are in other neighborhoods. And so those representatives often tend to be very progressive, very woke, and then oppose using law enforcement or mandating treatment or banning public camping. I see. Uh- Michael, what's what's the answer? If you were head of the board of supervisors or the mayor, you had the levers. What what would you do? I realize you you're not omniscient. You couldn't be sure of the result, but based on yeah. what you know and what you've seen, what what would you what would you do? 
Well, what I propose in San Francisco is a modified Dutch model, which is the model that mm-hmm. the Dutch, I think, have done. I think the Dutch have done. I haven't been to every country in the world, but I think they've done the best job of anybody that I've seen in in the in the, in the scientific literature. So you would have a shelter first policy. That means that uh, you have universal shelter. If anybody needs shelter, we have shelter for you, but you're also obligated to use it, which means there's a ban on public camping. You have a treatment first policy, meaning that at the shelter, you would be, uh, you would have access to psychiatrists um, or drug, drug addiction specialists, and you would be offered those treatments. Are you obligated? Um, Are you obligated? Well, if you break the law, then my view is that if you want to be a drug addict in your in the privacy of your own home, then that's not a huge priority for law enforcement. But if you're defecating in the streets, if you're camping publicly, if you're if you're breaking other laws, addicts, street addicts are usually breaking many laws during the day. Then when you're sentenced, the judge can offer you the choice of drug treatment Um, if you're. If you lack mens rea, if you lack uh, free will, then you should be mandated psychiatric care. I'm, I'm thinking of, of the Dutch here, particularly. If if you go into shelter, you said that psychi- psychi- psychiatry is offered, a treatment is offered. It's not required as a condition of being in the shelter. It's not part of the Dutch plan. Well, it's there's some gray areas here. I mean, the, the Dutch will tell you, they say, we don't mandate drug treatment. Okay. Well, what they mean is that if you are a drug addict and you're not breaking any other laws, they're not going to make you get clean. On the other hand, if you are arrested or your behavior is out of control in the shelter, including open drug use then yes, you could be mandated treatment. Um, but okay, they're trying to, okay. they're basically, you know, I shadow us, I shadowed a social worker there for a few days and saw him interact with people. And there's just a lot of, you can muscle people <laughs> and pressure people to get the help that they need. And what we find is that many people do take the help um, that often doesn't require them being arrested or threatened with prison but some amount of pressure is put on people, you know, up. So there's, there's ways to pressure people in, before yeah, you sure, actually arrest sure. them. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. So what else do the Dutch do? Um, well, you know, when you ask the, when you ask them, you're like, do you have, you know, like if someone's schizophrenic, you know, do you have room, do you have a psychiatric bed for them? Yes, of course you have to have the facilities. So you have to have the facilities. And so what that means in California in San Francisco, San Francisco's because it has attracted NLA, have attracted so many drug addicted, mentally ill people from around the United States. It's going to be impossible for them to treat everybody who's in their cities. So they're going to need to move people to other facilities in other parts of California where the rent is cheaper and where the cost of labor yeah. is lower as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it means that you might say, you might arrest somebody for public drug use. In San Francisco, you bring them before a judge, um, hopefully immediately, and say, look, you know, you can go to jail or you can, we have a 90-day place open for you in the Central Valley of California. And you you can, it's an organic farm and there's woodworking classes and you can take Python classes or programming classes. um, And we will 
you know, my view is that we have done a terrible job with having any continuity in the system. So a lot of people get out of rehab and they go right back on the street and use drugs and overdose and die. So you have to have a single hierarchical centralized care system so that if you're taking somebody, if you're mandating drug rehab as an alternative to jail for 90 days, the caseworker then several weeks before you are released is on, you know, is on you with a job, has a job to offer, has a place for you. You know, your the goal is independence. The goal yeah. is not, a, yeah. the goal is not permanent nanny state. The goal is not permanent dependence. Okay. The goal is yeah. independence. And that requires a sort of case management. We're talking to Michael Schillenberger. The book, fascinating book is San Francisco. S-I-K-O. Uh, why progressives ruin cities. Do you have a sense, again, just my experience, you know, I was the nation's first drug czar and I went to tons of places, tons of treatment centers, tons of crack houses and other things. This is an addiction that's very hard to break. If you live in a middle-class, upper-middle-class neighborhood, as I do, uh, a lot of families in the upper-middle-class are affected by this. You know, kids get into, into opioids. Now, of course, the danger of fentanyl. And, and the point I'm getting to is people who have resources and education and who should know better and have been given every opportunity get into the drug problems. And it's hard for them to get out. You know, the real recovery rate, I mean, I know what the places say, but real recovery rate over after six months or a year, two years for people with a lot of resources, mental, moral, spiritual, material, is still low in my view. So these people in the street, what's, what's your hope for their recovery? How many of them can make it out? Is going to that organic farm going to do it? Do you, can 20% make it out? 50, 80? What, what do you think? Well, right now it's very few, you know, yeah, right now it's you, like yeah, one out of, yeah. because there's no pressure. There's no system. Right, I mean, right. You know, what's interesting is that there's two groups. There's the there's a famous study you must know, which is the American soldiers in Vietnam who became addicted to heroin. Yeah. Yeah. They come back to the United States to communities where there is no heroin available. And the vast majority yeah. of them are are able to get over their addiction. And then another group is medical doctors. There is a group, there is a problem sometimes of medical doctors, in part because they have such easy access to drugs, but there is this research into medical doctors who become drug addicts. Well, you know, they, their, their rate of recovery is very high. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's well over 80%. It might be 90%. Why is that? Well, it's because they're at risk of losing their medical licenses. Yeah. They have something really serious at stake. So this is, again, a big part of San Francisco is making the case that it's very hard to quit your addiction if there's no pressure on you. And yeah. so this is something where I think conservatives have been absolutely spot on. Um, well, at least I should say some kinds of conservatives, because, of course, there's libertarians who I think take the yeah, wrong yeah. Like, extreme view here. You know, I have a, the addicts in the book, many, several of the addicts in the book were arrested and they'll tell yeah. you, they'll be like, look, it's not fun. It's hard. I don't recommend it, but I would be dead if I hadn't been arrested as for my addiction. This is several characters yeah. in the book that say this, and it's, it's very common to hear. 
In the Netherlands and Portugal, they've become very good at putting pressure on people to quit their addictions. Um, we have a disadvantage in the United States in that the amount of family disaffiliation is much higher. Addiction destroys people's relationships to their families because the addicts, uh, you know, lie, cheat, and steal. Yeah, uh, it's an uncomfortable reality of that disease, but the disease leads people to engage in absolutely horrendous behavior. And so it's we don't often have the families there to put the pressure on people. And so that rule tends to fall to the government. Crack and, and heroin were very addictive. Fentanyl and meth right now are insanely addictive. And yeah. it's really scary. But I, I don't, you know, I kind of go, I don't know what percentage we're going to be able to to fully get off these drugs, but we have to try. Um, there's basically the two alternatives that we have are mass incarceration and mass homelessness. Their only other third way is to put pressure on addicts to quit their addiction and get on with their lives. And, and that's basically what I'm proposing. I, I think it would be uh, more cost effective and more humane to do that way. But it's certainly not the end of the story. I mean, we have to just we, we sure. need to get back to, to, to explaining to kids and others just how dangerous and terrible these drugs are and just how addictive they are. And and it is relocation part of that third way. It's an important part to go to Bakersfield or somewhere, Fresno. For quitting, it is. I think the worst thing is to I mean, it's very hard for addicts to quit while they're in the midst of an open drug scene or where people around them are using. It's very hard. Right. So they need to be, I think they do need to be outside of those environments. I mean, ultimately, addicts are going to have to get, have to survive in the real world. And in the real world, there's going to be drugs and alcohol available to them. Your discussion of the doctors. Thinking of another lyric, who's, you know, love is all you need. It's not the other Janis Joplin lyric, you know, nothing left to lose, right? Right. You got a lot of people with nothing left to lose. So, what, you know, where's your leverage? Well, there's certainly, I mean, the problem is, is that right now we, we resuscitate uh, addicts who OD and they go right back to, to doing drugs often within hours. I mean, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, so, but for sure, I mean, I think the idea is if you have a centralized care system that as soon as people OD, you kind of go, Hey man, you just almost died. Let's get you on a suboxone taper, which is basically the opioid replacement therapy and get you into that rehab now, like not in a few days, like right now. And we should be able to offer that. And that's going to help. That's going to, that's a key moment. You're right to identify that moment. That's an existential moment par excellence. Um, I think for a lot of other people, they're going to have to be arrested. You know, they're breaking laws all the time. And so once you sort of say, look, you can't sleep there, you can't camp there, you have to go. And if, if they violate those orders and you have a shelter available for them and they don't use it or they violate their, or they're, they're, they're causing problems in the shelters, they're doing drugs or whatever, then they're arrested, then they're brought in front of the judge and they're given the choice of incarceration or rehabilitation. And I think the vast right. majority will take rehab, but they're going to have to be mandated that but that flies in the face of the progressives ideology, right? Yes. We're pushing back against it, but yes. <laughs> is it at the breaking point? Can you, can you, can you win? Can you prevail in your view? 
you know, we've, you know, Bill, we've made some, I think we've made some serious headway. I mean, the mayor, you know, we were beating up on the mayor for six months. Um, The book came out in October and in about almost two months, exactly after the book came out, the mayor announced that she was going to do a crackdown on open air drug use and open air drug dealing. She immediately faced a backlash from progressives on the board of supervisors. And it's, we're in the knife fight in a phone booth part of the struggle right now bill it's it's every day there's something new happening there's a lot of cynicism out there i just went on twitter last night and pushed back against the um i'm a independent at this point politically and i will support anybody if they are taking the right actions um democrat republican and the mayor's been doing, she's been moving in the right direction. She needs our support. I, I'm not promising that she's, I have, there's no way to promise that she's going to be able to solve this. But as long as the politicians are moving in our direction, we're going to, we're going to praise them. Quick questions. Do you have, have you seen any evidence? I spent some time in them that faith-based institutions are effective with some of these folks. Some of I, absolutely. I mean, Salvation, so first of all, Salvation Army uh, is the entity that does much of the work for the, the Netherlands yeah. government. So yeah. the Dutch government has 2000 Salvation Army workers. Wow. We held a protest of drug dealers in Los Angeles. And 15 minutes before the protest began, there showed up a bunch of uniformed Salvation Army workers. And it was as though God had sent us angels because they were so disciplined. They were they were so clear and so I absolutely love the Salvation Army. I think the church, I think I, I'm a big believer in recovery. I'm not a dogmatist. I think some people, if they, if they need to use methadone or suboxone, that's fine. I think that people that have been through recovery and that are, that are completely clean of drugs are in many ways more mature. They're more self-deprecating. They're more modest. They're harder working. They're more disciplined. I think we need to do a lot of work with them. And so part of it, you may know that the federal government doesn't allow or that the the official approach is harm reduction. And so you're not supposed to, there's not supposed to be funding. Actually, I don't know if it's federal, if it's just state and local, but there's not supposed to be funding for abstinent um, only approaches, which is absolutely crazy. Crazy. You know, at the same time, I think we should be, I'm very Dutch. I think that you have to be practical and so mm-hmm. I want to do what works, but absolutely there's a place for abstinent only in Salvation Army and churches. Back to San Francisco and your book, um, sort of simple question. Doesn't the mayor and the board of supervisors know that this is really wrecking the city in some way? Absolutely. Besides, besides wrecking the lives of these people. There's no absolutely, winners here. Bill. There's no winners here. They're, they're, the people on the street aren't winning, and the, and the people who are trying to live their lives in San Francisco aren't winning either. The winners are the are the opportunistic progressive nonprofits that get large city contracts, the opportunistic progressive activists who become you know self righteous and full of um, self congratulations and self righteousness, um, and you know. But you're right; the losers are particularly the people in the low income uh, minority communities. The I think it was multiple things that forced the mayor to finally act. It was the people in the community most affected by the open air drug dealing. Um, a girl got hit, got got hit by a, an addict in the face, and they organized to protest. It was um, the work of our coalition on the ground protesting drug dealing. 
It was the break in. They did. Uh, it was the increasing crime and the more brazen amounts of crime, including against the Louis Vuitton luxury store in San Francisco, that resulted in many of the luxury stores being boarded up yeah. in the shopping district before Christmas. Yeah, saw that. Yeah. And it was honestly, it really was the national media, and particularly the conservative media, Fox News. The San progressives in San Francisco absolutely hate Fox News and they demonize it, but it was absolutely essential. And I told Tucker Carlson this directly. I said it's absolutely essential that Fox News kept the pressure on San Francisco because it did it did result in a tarnishing of the San Francisco brand. I mean, Bill, we get stories from people that have been to Reykjavik, people that have been to Thailand. And they are asked in those countries about why are things so bad in San Francisco. So the damage to the brand, the San Francisco brand is so severe at this point. I mean, obviously I have a book, I had a book on it. You know, I was, I was, I got a book contract to write about San Francisco. So I think the damage to the San Francisco brand, and by the way, that damage is not going to be fixed overnight and it shouldn't be fixed overnight. It's not going to be, you're not going to be able to fix it overnight. But I think it's like, I think it finally was what compelled them to take action. I, is that damage like where we began? You know, I used to go there a, a lot. Yeah. Speeches, meetings, yeah. national, international meetings. Canceling, I mean, canceling meetings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they were canceling meetings before that. And, you know, there's like right. meetings where, you, you know, people, they don't want to, people just don't want to come. Um, tourism is way down. There was a report that just came out that showed that they, they asked people whether they're more reluctant to go downtown in the various cities. And San Francisco was the worst. It was 50% of San Francisco residents said they don't like to go downtown. Well, if you don't have a downtown, you don't have a city. And if you don't have a city, you don't have a civilization. And so that's part of why I'm really glad to speak to you and to other conservatives, because I do think conservatives understand that and have been... You know, I think there's some conservatives that I have seen that say, you know, kind of forget those liberal cities. But, you know, we're still a single country and San Francisco is is still an American city. And so, you know, you kind of go, it's not just up to the people of San Francisco. It's absolutely correct for people not in San Francisco to be concerned about San Francisco. No, I know. I know. Remember at 9-11, after 9-11, that's not a joking matter, but. I wrote a lot about it, and I got interviewed by a Portland, Oregon radio station. This guy said, I want to talk to you about this attack on you guys. I said, no, not not you guys, us guys, all of us. So oh, it was an attack on the East Coast. I said, no, no, it's an attack on America. So the same point you're making. Um, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's part of, you know, every time I see it and see the clips, I, I just shake my head, you know, just what a shame and not just that you know i or my wife maybe can't walk around safely but what a shame for these people because this ain't a strategy that's going to help them yeah i think there's something else though i appreciate you bringing up 9-11 i mean i think this the alternative to woke religion progressivism became woke it became religious it became dogmatic it became a secular religion for people that don't believe in god and have lapsed from Christianity or Judaism or whatever. And the alternative to that is patriotism. And I've, I actually think there's a lot of, um, I'm, um, I'm still consider myself a liberal. I still am a politically independent, but I think there's something really important about the changes that have occurred among Republicans to understand the importance of nationalism 
the importance of patriotism. Yep. And, and so the biggest contradiction is the idea that one could be a nationalist and not care about other cities. <laughs> so if, uh, so to my, my Republican and conservative friends, I say, if you're part of the Trump nationalist uh, revolution within the Republican Party, then you have to care about San Francisco because San Francisco is an American city. And to my progressive friends, I point out, I'm like, yeah, I, I believe in universal human rights. And I, you know, I think in, to some extent, we're all a single species, or we are a single species, and we need to think of ourselves as a single species. But we're also Americans. And that means that we actually have to work together to solve a bunch of these problems. And we take a lot of drug addicts in San Francisco from Cleveland and Ohio yeah, and West sure Virginia. And, sure um, and I think we should continue to treat them, but we need to figure out there needs to be a, a national response to this, not just a local one. Michael Schellenberger, the founder and president of Environmental Progress, author of the book, San Francisco, why progressives ruin cities. Anything I, we didn't cover, anything that, that you want to say that I didn't have the good sense to ask you about? Well, no, I mean, except, I, well, what I would, my, I have a question for you, which is, of course, you were the America's first drug czar. You've been thinking about drug addiction for decades. Uh, what is your view of, of the current drug crisis? I mean, I, you may know I worked for the Soros foundation and Soros funded philanthropies in the 1990s. When I got out of that work in the year 2000, 17,000 people were dying in the United States every year. Last yeah. last year, 100,000 people died. What's your view of, of what's going on? I, I think attention must be paid to take another line, from, not music, but literature. That's uh, Willie Loman. Uh, Linda Lohman in, in Death of a Salesman, she says to the boys, attention, attention must be paid. Very little attention to this issue. One thing we did was we got a lot, we got a lot of attention. I was the first, and so there was, you know, this drug thing problem. And then we made a lot of headlines because we were saying some what things some people thought were outrageous, but but we were paying attention. So I think it'd be great for, you know, the president to talk about this or the vice president. Good Lord, she knows the neighborhood, right? It would be uh, it would be very good. Yes. And then and then, you know, to do what works. And I that's why I'm very interested in what you're what you're saying, saying here about about the Dutch. There's some other immediately practical things. I wrote President Trump and I've had urged a couple of Republican governors to write President Biden. And they have that the uh, Mexican drug cartel should be designated foreign terrorist organizations, FTOs, so that we can go after them. Uh, you know, whether they cross the border or not, because what they're doing is, you know, uh, waging war with, with fentanyl and, and other things. But, you know, atten- a, a lot more attention in a lot of places. I'd like to see much more attention to effective treatment. But I'm with you. Uh, you know, you, you just got to get the people off the street and somewhere and do something. Maybe it's faith based. Maybe it's an organic farm in the Central Valley, but get them the hell out of there. And try mm-hmm. something, and whatever the success rate is, try try something. And you know, you'll you'll have you'll have the double advantage. It seems to me of giving a chance to save a person's life and improving your city, improving your city, which matters. But you know, there's there's lots of lots of little strategies that you know I've I've learned that I think that I think work. We discovered a lot of a lot of people. You talked about family. What was your word? Disaffiliation. Is that, is that yes. But, yes. you know, but where families were close and, you know, and wives 
wives would say to husbands, you get clean or I'm gone. And, you know, that yeah. works. Uh, you know, you get clean or you're not welcome for Christmas with the kids. And, you know, if people want to get something they want to hold out of that, but that's why I asked you the question about the people in the street, because they've left a lot of that all, all that behind or a lot of it behind. So what do they have to lose? And that's a, that, that's a problem that makes it harder, but it's still an argument, right? You want to save your life, right? You don't want to die. You don't want to live like this, do you? Do you? And I mean, I think most people respond to that. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure. Podcasts have changed the way we get our news, entertainment, politics, everything. Mm-hmm. They've rewritten the script. Uh, somebody said to me this morning, I don't read op-eds, but I do listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. We hope you listen to this one. Well, there's another exciting development that's rewritten the script, too, and that's called Masterworks. Okay. Masterworks enables you to diversify your portfolio. This is for investors Mm -hmm. and potentially protected from market volatility. And you do so by investing in contemporary art with Masterworks. Ah, okay. Now, I'm not up on contemporary art, but boy, it's hot Mm -hmm. and people love it. They're the fintech startup shaking up the alternative investing landscape. It lets you build a portfolio of fine art without spending millions of dollars. Mm Mm-hmm. Invest in Picasso, Warhol. Uh, invest in paintings by iconic artists like these with Masterworks. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Masterworks has an industry-leading research team, and it's created the first and only platform where anybody can buy and trade shares of paintings, giving you the same access enjoyed by millionaires and billionaires for generations. See, now you're talking my language, because I'm not a big art guy. Like, I sit there and I look at it, I don't get it. But I'm a money person. Give it a try. Our listeners get priority access to their latest offerings at masterworks.art slash bill. Okay. Masterworks.art slash bill. Join a new generation of investors. This is a new deal, boy. This is the, the modern world. Join that new generation of investors at masterworks.art slash bill. And folks, see important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Masterworks, give it a look. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. If somebody wants to email the show, what do they send it to, Claude? Heaven just knows. Send, yeah, just send an email to billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty easy. Share this podcast with your family and friends. We're growing, aren't we, Claude? We're growing. Yes, by the week. Week by week, we're going. Yeah, share it. Let people know uh, about the show and uh, send it around. All right. uh, We'll catch up next week. Very good. Thank you, folks. Thanks for listening.